Hey there, it's Nick Turzo, and this is The Radical Podcast. No, we won't be overthrowing any governments, but we will be learning from radical creatives who rule the world. Welcome back to another episode of The Radical. I'm your host, Nick Turzo. I hope this finds all of you remaining healthy and somehow figuring out how to store your energy that we're going to need in the month of November. As I promised in the opening to my last episode, we have a series of Legends of the Fall coming up in the next few weeks. And my guest this week is the full-on definition of legend and also a model of genius. Folks, you have no idea uh, what this conversation personally means to me. My very special guest this week is the icon Bob Mould. Bob, as an artist, is an example of genius in action. His iconic band, Husker Du, was revered by any musician that has ever mattered. Sugar was punk pop perfection. His remarkable solo work demonstrates not only perseverance, but also maintaining the highest level of quality. Bob has a new record out called Blue Hearts, and you all need to listen to this. It's incredible, and it's crazy relevant. Earlier this week, he also released an incredible solo career box set called Distortion which contains 24 CDs of his solo work with additional outtakes. Bob and I will discuss what it was like being gay men in the rock and roll game in the late 80s and early 90s, his own activism, art, and much more. Coming up, my special chat with one of my music idols, Bob Mould. Hi, Bob. Hey, Nick, how you doing today? I am well, well. How is your uh, quarantine life? Quarantine life is, uh, it's oddly reminiscent of being up on the farm in northern Minnesota in 1988. You know, it's pretty, pretty much me and the fruit trees. And I don't, I don't have two dozen chickens running around my backyard right at the moment, which I used to have on the farm. But otherwise, yeah, I guess, pan, you know, pandemic life is, is, is good. I'm healthy and, you know. Getting, right. getting, getting some sleep, eating well, all that fun stuff. <laughs> That's great. What would have you been doing this year, man? Did you have touring set to support everything that you're releasing this fall? Yeah. So the, the new album, Blue Hearts, September 25, we were scheduled to be on the road shortly after that. And uh, that touring would have gone through November. And of course, all of those plans have been uh, are being rescheduled as we speak. Yeah, how many times? <laughs> uh, try, try, yeah, trying to keep it, trying to keep it to a minimum. I, I guess I, I guess I was being cautious with uh, with my business folks and saying, you know, I think we got to at least get past this election before we can start making real plans. <laughs> right. Uh, I think that's a fair bet. Yes. So you you kind of snuck in recording this record just before everything kind of shut down up in Chicago. Is that where you recorded Blue Hearts? Yeah, the uh, the the new album was recorded in early February and uh, recorded that at Steve Albini Studio Electrical Audio in Chicago. 
I believe that's our third time with this band recording in that studio. It's a you know great facility, and you know there's really uh, you know when you when you have sub zero snow every day, it uh, it keeps you busy in the inside the studio. Yeah, how how fast were you able to record this time? I mean, have well, you got it down pat now, or you're just in and out? Well, I think with I think with Blue Hearts, the material, the you know, the objective was to go for a, a very sort of rough and ready approach, not uh, not a lot of extra takes, not a lot of uh, finessing. It, you know, the recordings just go get on the floor and play. And the you know the band component where it's rhythm guitar, bass, and drums that took four days this time, which is a little quicker than usual. Uh, and then after that, you know, I spend about a week, you know, just sort of looking at guitars, looking at words, looking at vocals and, you know, sort of pacing all of that extra stuff across a number of days. And then, uh, once we got all that done, came back to the Bay area and went to a studio called new improved recording over in Oakland and spent five days mixing. So all, t- all told two weeks and it was very, very quick, very quick process. It, is all your writing usually done before you go in? I mean, are you that guy or do you do some writing while you're recording? Uh, I, I like to leave a few songs open-ended and just let the uh, sort of let the flow of the session and let the, you know, the topics of the, the moment dictate, uh, you know, those, those last little bits. And, uh, but, but with this record, I mean, the, you know, the, the song American Crisis, which is the first song people heard from the record back in early June, that song was written in April of 2018 while I was living in Berlin. So that, you know, I mean, that was one of the, I guess, one of the tent poles for the the writing of, of Blue Hearts. You know, it, it got, it got taken off of Sunshine Rock and held in pocket. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to have a really strong idea of what the, what the, the framework of the record and what the foundation of the record is, but it's always good to leave a, a few windows open just to you know just for a little fresh air at the very end right well what i like about you too is i mean the you know the vacillation between projects um you know because if you look look the world's a way different place today than it was maybe when you wrote sunshine rock um even though american crisis came out of that um but i like how you shift from that record which is i think you know very uh, melodic, highly polished, and now we're kind of in Blue Hearts, which is raw as hell, mm-hmm. which is awesome and yes. so guitar driven. And I love this record. So I just think it's your shift just in a short period of time. It to me is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you know, across the five records that I've made with John Worcester, my drummer, and Jason Narducci, my bassist and vocalist, we, you know, we started back in early 2012 recording what became Silver Age, the first of the five albums for Merge. And, uh, you know, we we had played together for a couple of years, but it was the first time the three of us got in a room to make a record. And, you know, it was, it was a very celebratory record. It was it was put together to time to line up time wise with the 20th anniversary reissues of the sugar catalog, you know, mainly copper blue, which came out in 1992. So that, you know, that was a pretty upbeat kind of record. And then, you know, the two records that followed that uh, beauty and ruin and patch the sky were informed by the loss of my father and then my mother so when it came to Sunshine Rock, uh, it, 
you know, I, I made a conscious effort to write optimistically just, you know, I mean, I three, three down records in a row would have been a bit much for any of us. And yeah, I think I succeeded with that record. It reflected, you know, this new life that I had created for myself and my partner over in Berlin and, you know, you know, all the, all the big orchestration and, you know, deeper arrangements and, you know, generally optimistic lyrics that, that was a, that, you know, I think I succeeded with that record, but, but again, you know, the, the world was, was getting darker and darker every day. And, uh, you know, when I got back to America in late 2019, I was sort of astonished at, you know, the, the, the sort of, obvious polarity you know just you know in the in the country where people had really chosen sides and you know that always makes for good fodder for 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 protest music i suppose right how long were you actually in berlin um it started going over in early 2016 found an apartment in the middle of 2016 and unfortunately because of the pandemic i had to wrap the apartment up uh about four months ago so uh back in san francisco full-time but that uh, was a great experience. I love I love the city of Berlin. Uh, it's very progressive, and I can't wait to go back and, and visit friends once uh, you know once Americans are allowed out of our uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah out of our out of our cages, so to speak. <laughs> it's so nice to be wanted around the world, isn't it? Um, we're, we're number one. <laughs> yeah, we are number one. So. And what I'm not sure. But. <laughs> And so on this podcast, I don't tend to like break songs down too much. You know, I leave that for kind of other people to do. But, um, you know, on Blue Hearts, I did find, you know, some interesting themes that you kind of had. And I thought, you know, opening with Heart on My Sleeve, you know, I thought it was just quite literally like this raw stripped down. Um, it's just you, man. Um, and an acoustic guitar. And it's, boy, you feel that. Yeah, it uh, it's a it's a really stark way to start a record. It uh, you know it sort of lays out the topics that are that will be discussed throughout the record. Uh, so you know, I think with a song like "Heart on My Sleeve," trying to show people, you know, this this record is very simple. It's in earnest. It's you know, these are serious matters, and it reminds me of going to you know sometimes when I go to the theater. Uh, and, uh, you know, a play will start and the lights come down and, you know, a solitary figure walks to the front of the stage and gives a soliloquy, I suppose, you know, a couple minutes of laying out the, the terrain for the, for the journey that's coming. And, you know, I, I try to keep that in mind when I'm making records, you know, it's, it's always good to use the first song to set the stage for what's to come. So, you know, that was, I think that was the idea with that that was the idea with that orchestra, you know, with that simple, you know, sort of plaintive approach of just me in a room with a guitar and sharing these, these ideas that, that get fleshed out across the next 30 minutes. Right. And does it, you know, I get the impression, you know, maybe like me too, that, you know, as a gay man myself, you know, coming out in the mid eighties, um, and your awakening was AIDS and, you know, kind of being ignored and uh, so forth. And that's how you got to start your life. And here we do a full arc to today. And, you know, some things haven't changed, right? Here we are again. Um, is there a sense of that when you were kind of writing this? Of course, that was, that was a lot of the, a lot of the central theme, you know, specifically with a song like American Crisis. Um, you know, it's funny, we, you know, I think the LGBTQ community has had, 
you know, a lot of success in showing, showing America that we're, you know, that we're part of America, I guess, for lack of a better term. We, we are citizens of the country. We are taxpayers. We are educators. We are parents. We are renegades. We are politicians. We are, you know, we're, we're well represented in the military. Having lived in D.C. for seven years, I can attest to that. Um, but, you know, a lot of these small victories that we've accumulated since the 80s, which was a, a really sort of, you know, a, a moment, you know, for me of feeling terribly marginalized, all of these small victories that we gain across time can be reversed very easily. And I think that's what we're seeing now with this administration and, you know, yeah, I mean, my my mind definitely went back to the 1980s when thinking about this record, and yeah, just some of the some of the parallels that are very stark, you know, between you know between 1980 and 2016, and particularly 1983 and 2019 when I started having that terrible sense of you know deja vu. Mm. Yeah, I definitely can feel you on all of that. Um, and on the song like Siberian Butterfly, um, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of read something that you'd kind of said is something, you know, some of it's about the theme of art being consumed by wealthy people kind of as possessions. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it dealt with a little bit about your, you know, lack of confidence as a gay man, um, maybe earlier on. Not today, I assume. Yeah, not today, but, uh, you know, my, my journey to get to where I speak comfortably and openly as a gay man was a long journey. And, you know, it's, it went through a lot of different phases, a lot of different stages. And, uh, you know, it's, I I think there's a, you know, I think the, the times have definitely changed in, I think in the sense of younger people in America are very, aware that sexuality is not necessarily a binary, you know, it's not a black and white thing that there's, you know, many, you know, sexuality presents itself in many different ways. And at the end of the day, people are people and, you know, sexuality is, is in sexual identity is part of who we are. Uh, for me in the 1980s, it was, you know, I was a guy in a rock band who happened to be gay. I did not, you know, I did not, feel like it was, you know, the defining factor in my life in terms of, you know, how I presented myself in my work, you know, and then, you know, through the nineties with, you know, you know, coming out, you know, a little later than I probably could have or should have, or would have liked to have come out. But, you know, we all make that step when the time is right. And, you know, then moving forward and, you know, taking ownership of my sexual identity, you know, especially in the last 20 years and how I, you know, how I, how I align myself with my community and what I think I can do to help and what I think is best left to other people to do to help because they're much better at it than I would be just knowing my own skill set. Um, yeah, I think the song talks about that metamorphosis you know, in, in, you know, in, in a, in a, in a, in a real innocent way, it's not a, not a heavy handed song at all. It's meant to be, meant to be sort of a, 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 you know, 
a celebration of of diversity and growth for all of us. Because I, I, you know, I agree with you. I mean, being in a rock band like you were in the '80s, you know, when I was an A and R executive signing a lot of rock bands and a lot of Seattle stuff, um, you know, I hid that my identity, right? Because I didn't think, well, gee, you're dealing with bands that are rock bands. These guys are like only about girls and drugs and every rock and roll cliche. And I can't be myself around these guys. So I got to just tamp it down both uh, with the artists I'm dealing with. And secondly, inside of the corporate culture that I was within, you know, so I, I went through that harshly, like in the late 80s and early 90s. It's, it's, it's really interesting because those times were, those times were really different than where we're at now with, with America and how they, I think how generally America views, you know, our community. But yeah, back then it's, it's almost, um, I was talking to somebody a while ago about the idea of passing, you know, the, the, that term. And I almost, I almost felt like it was an antiquated term these days but then i realized that you know trans folk definitely battle with the notion of passing you know as far as you know how one defines themselves or how others see people you know in in terms of you know you know gender pronouns and things like that but yeah i i always felt like in the 80s just sort of keep doing what you do and if you you know if you contribute and you do good work and you know, that'll be enough. But, but yeah, man, things were, things were different back then. I mean, for you, did you ever feel, well, I mean, you, I guess you mentioned it, you just, you sort of felt like you had to tamp down, you know, who you wanted to be or who you might be when you're not on the clock. It's, it was, uh, it's a real, it's, it's a really challenging thing. And it's funny now we have so many people that are coming forward. You know, I know Rob Halford has been, you know, I mean, I just love reading, anything he's got, you know, or hearing his words, he's turned into quite, quite the, quite the sage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I got a chance to work with him when I was at Columbia because I wanted to, um, cause you know, he was somewhat open at that time. So I, you know, tried to help him out with his solo work back then. So I have enormous respect for him. Um, so, um, yeah, that, that's just, the, and that's that little bit right before you and I, you know, got into the business and, you know, I just can't imagine in the late seventies, how, how tricky, you know, navigating your sexuality was if it didn't involve, you know, sort of the, the typical, you know, heterosexual rock star groupie drugs kind of business that is so weird to think about now. It seems only Freddie Mercury managed to do it in his own way. So yeah, I mean, I mean, Elton, Elton, Elton gave it a shot. I mean, yeah, yes. it's it's you know, and there's people like Jabariath, of course, who were just so outrageous, and you know, the yeah. the, the the real David Bowie, I guess, or whatever he used to, you know, he used to portray yeah. himself. But I think for guys like you and I, you know, I, I, look, I'm not going to label you, but I feel like we're a little bit more outliers in a way. Um, you know, our interests are different culturally, maybe a little differently. Um, you know, I was into hard rock music and punk music and, you know, it's just different. I had different guideposts, um, which made me a little bit more of an outlier as a gay man, I felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I have I have friends in. uh you know, I have friends in the Bay Area who are young, you know, a generation younger than I, who, you know, maybe came out a little later than, you know, the young gener the youngest generation does. And and they sort of talk about that. God, where are all the 
where are all the guys at shows? You know, I go to shows and I have trouble getting my, you know, get my gay friends to go to metal shows or hard rock shows. And it's, uh, yeah, I guess it, I guess, you know, the good news is it speaks to the, to the diversity of, you know, our communities, but, but yeah, it's still, I think there's still, still remnants of that a little bit. You know, the ideas, you know, sort of stereotypes maybe from, from, from the past or, or just, you know, how people gather, I suppose. Right. Well, and on a, on a, on a good note, you know, with blue hearts, I thought, um, it was interesting how you ended the record, um, with, um, you know, the last two songs, um, which was password to my soul, right. In the ocean. And mm-hmm. I felt like both of those were so healing after the 12 songs before that, you know what I mean? Or the <laughs> yes. 10 songs, I mean, 10 songs before that took you through a pretty rattling ride. And, uh, it was nice to end kind of with that healing way out yeah. of the record. <laughs> Yeah. Password to my soul was, you know, when I talk about leaving the window open for, you know, for the vibe of a session that, you know, that song, the words, you know, came together as we were recording the record because it, it, I, I always look to, you know, I try to look to create a summary, I guess, or a, a closing statement for a record. And then, you know, a song like the ocean was to me an epilogue of sorts, but, uh, yeah, password to my soul. If you, you look at it, it's, it, it sort of revisits all of the themes that were established earlier and tries to give resolution through music, through healing. You know, that's what we, this is why we dedicate our lives to the, to the craft is, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's all I have. I, I think it's the same for a lot of musicians. This is this is this is our voice, and this is what we do. We're journalists. We're storytellers. We're you know we're musicians, and and you know in times of in times of doubt, in times of confusion, you know music is you know the the sort of the the pillar for for everything that we. That we that we do and we live for so yeah nice way to wrap up a record with those two ideas no well well done my friend well done thank you how did you um end up like meeting up then with like jason and john and kind of collaborating over the last few years uh well jason narducey and i have been friends since 1990 um i met jason at a sound check of a solo show i was performing in chicago he showed up with some press clippings and some live tapes that friends had made of shows and some demos of songs that he was working on. And we stayed in touch and started collaborating on other things over the years. Jason had a, uh, had a band in the nineties called Verbo and I produced a record, you know, with them, you know, to help him out with some of his music in the two thousands, Jason started playing bass with me on the road i think in 05 and then uh we had a tour i think it might have been in 2008 and we had a drummer in the band who was really good drummer but maybe not for the style of music we play live and uh john worster became available in the middle of this tour that I, that Jason and I were doing with a keyboard player and a drummer. And, uh, John came in to, you know, sort of came in in the late innings to, to help close out the tour. And, uh, it was just like magic. You know, he learned the entire set at soundcheck one day and, 
you know, with something like that happens, you recognize that that all the people are speaking the same language unconsciously. Yes. And how, like, since we got into the live thing a little bit, you know, when you have a body of work like yours um, over so much time and you have a lot of output, I mean, regardless of how many years are involved, you're, you're totally proficient and, yep. and, and very good at writing songs and putting music out. Um, how do you decide like a set now for like when you tour, like what goes through that? Well, the new material is always the, the focus. It's, we play as much of a new record as possible. Uh, typically at least half the record, sometimes two thirds of the record. And had we been touring right now for blue hearts, we would have been playing all of the record because these songs were, were built for the stage. Um, in terms of other, you know, non new album material, it's, you know, I think I used to be a, I used to be more of a contrarian. I used to stay, you know, not, not focus on the hits or the favorites. And I think as time has gone on, I recognize the fact that you, I have to be mindful of giving the people at least some of what they want. So it's so I look back at you know the the evergreen songs the the ones that that are always favorites for all people and you know, try to make sure that they're those are well represented in a set. Um, I think we're very mindful of our strong suits. You know there there have been records that I've made with other musicians besides Jason and John where stylistically it's maybe not our collective strong suit as Bob, John, and Jason. So, you know, we might stay away from those or we might try to rework them a little bit. And then there's other songs that are right smack dab in the middle of our collective wheelhouse. And those are always on the list. So it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, focusing on, focusing on a new material, being mindful to, scatter some hits and then, you know, look at deep cuts and things that fit well, you know, with our style and also things that fit well in a set list with the new material, you know, things that, things that help to sort of highlight how we got to new material. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I spend a, spend a fair amount of time thinking about all that well before a tour and, you know, I usually come in with a number of a number of set lists, number of ideas, and then we, you know, we sort of pare it down to you know, maybe forty songs that we keep in rotation. And you know, over time, when you mess with a set at the beginning of a tour, second, third, fourth show, and then all of a sudden, boom, it clicks, and the show becomes flawless. And then you tend to use that as the 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 baseline for the rest of the tour. Bob, the curator, basically. Yes. yes. Um, and, and speaking of curation, you know, I, I have to ask you, you have a uh, enormous box set coming out called Distortion Box mm-hmm. of the next couple of weeks. Is it out now? It's out now. Or is it uh, pre-order now? Uh, it's pre-order now. Distortion, the box set, both in CD and vinyl forms will be, I think they're going to start delivering in mid-October at this point. Okay. I think we were originally at the beginning of the month, and then we had a we had a couple snafus just with you know coronavirus related yes. production stuff. So, so yes. it'll be it'll definitely everything will be fulfilled by Halloween at the latest. So awesome! Yeah. I have to buy one of those. Um, 
So my question kind of is, you know, when you've had the career you've had, um, you know, and in my mind, you're a legend. So I'll just put that thank, out there. Oh, thank you. You are. You've been such an influence on so many people that, um, you know, I think we can probably go back and uh, debate some people's songwriting that's gone on and give you credits for a lot of different people's music. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> let's do it. Um but how do you come like at what point? Because, you know, I think you view yourself as a current artist and you are and you're validly current. Um, yeah. How do you decide to like cross the line and say, you know what, it's time to put it all together. I'm putting everything out there. There's stuff I don't even want to hear again, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what goes through your mind and how do you know it's the right time to kind of do this? Well, uh, Demon Music Group, who's overseeing the box set, and it, it's originating out of the UK, where Demon is based, uh, They, I worked with them in 2012 for the the parallel reissues you know, of the Sugar material. You know, Merge, Merge had started working with me, to, you know, ostensibly for the Sugar reissues. Demon was the, was the parallel partner for the rest of the world. And uh, they did a pretty good job with those sugar reissues. And, you know, we stayed in touch over the years. And about five years ago, they proposed, uh, you know, a, a solo career spanning box set. And I was like, well, you know, I'm really busy with current albums right now. So if there comes a time on the calendar where it looks like there'll be a break and we can make it work, we should aim for that. So in 2019, I, at the beginning of the year, I thought, great, Sunshine Rock is coming out. We'll get all the touring done, and then I can address a box set and maybe get it on the calendar for fall of 2020. So that's how the, you know, that's how we got to that point where we started generating assets in earnest. But then, you know, Blue Hearts just started writing itself out of nowhere. And then I was like, uh Oh, I, we have a problem here. These are, I think these two are going to happen at the same time. And, you know, then went to demon and went to merge and said, can we make this work? And everybody thought about it for a minute and said, yeah, I think this is one of those cases where more is more. So let's, let's go for more this time. And here we are. And it's worked out great so far. I think, uh, I think to have a 30 year retrospective alongside a current album that speaks, that's incredibly timely in a sort of uncanny way, like not an enjoyable way, but uncanny. And to have a current album that sounds closer to things that happened before the box set, it's a bit of a, at least a wrinkle, I guess, in the fabric of time. I don't know if it's quite a rip, but <laughs> it's sort of a funny one to me. It's like, it's like how this new album break through all of this decades of, of other stuff to go backwards in time. But anyhow, I don't know. I think it's a nice compliment. I think that totally works as a strategy. Um, and then what are the, like on the, there's bonus stuff on here. Are those outtakes from other things or is there new stuff or is it mostly outtakes? Um, it's mostly outtakes, B-sides, live material that was released in limited form back in the day. Uh, we also went through and uh, collected up all of the available collaborations that I've done over the years, whether it was, you know, singing a song for the sixth album, whether it was, you know, things I did with the late Vic Chestnut, 
you know, to, to Butch Walker, to Foo Fighters, to Throwing Muses, to Golden Palominos, to, you know, the Richard Thompson tribute song with John Doe and DJ Bonebreak, you know, stuff like that. Just a lot of, a lot of, uh, you know, sort of, you know, un, not unreleased, but, you know, sort of maybe uncompiled tracks. So there's, there's that audio component. We, uh, you know, the biggest thing to, one of the biggest parts of it that I really enjoy was reimagining all of the album covers. Uh, we're working with an uh, artist in Munich, Germany named Simon Marchner. Uh, and he, he and I worked together to try to create a travelogue that would help to illuminate all of the different places that I've lived over the 30 years that those records were written and recorded and try to give people a, you know, try to give it a coherency and, you know, also, you know, looking at the mastering and the sound of records, trying to get everything to fit together better. So it's, it was a, yeah, it was a really big, big project. I think we're done. Done Really ambitious, very ambitious. So yeah, thanks. But I can't wait. I can't wait to get my hands on it. So, you know, you kind of hit a theme in there. That's interesting to me. You know, we're both, kind of upstate New York kids. That's where we were born, you and I, yeah. and uh, I think about a county away from each other. Um, and I've had a little bit of a nomadic life and I've always felt like, hey, every city I go to, everyone says, well, Bob Mould's kind of, he's moved, Bob's moved here. Oh. You guys should meet. <laughs> I always feel like I'm kind of stalking you, but how is like that, that, that part of your life, you know, seeing different places, being part of different communities, like how has that shaped your view and has it shaped your writing? I'm sure it has, but. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 you know, environment is key to the creative process, you know, where geographically where you are, you know, I grew up in the Adirondacks. You and I both know what a harsh winter really looks like. Uh, and then to, you know, to go to, to go to, uh, to go to the twin cities and spend 11 years, both at college and with Husker Du and, and up in Northern Minnesota as well. You know, that environment where you're inside six months a year, it really changes your outlook on life. You know, it's it's very different than, say, living in San Francisco, where I am now. Uh, you know, I spent three years in Austin, Texas in the 90s. And, you know, I, th- I think I have a good sense of, you know, all, you know, Austin back in the 90s before South by Southwest became a worldwide industry. You know, it was a, you know, it was a, a progressive college town state capital in the middle of a very conservative state so you know i learned a lot about guns and you know what people perceive their rights to be so you you i mean so you get an understanding for you know what red life is i suppose uh you know i spent a lot of time living in new york city and you know that's new york is new york and is such an amazing place and Washington, D.C., you know, a town that, you know, is based on government and military and, you know, know, higher education and just how, you know, the, you know, that was a a really close up look at, you know, real disparity within communities, you know, living in central D.C. and going three blocks away and feeling like I'm in a completely different culture and not being sure if I'm part of the problem or part of the solution. You know, I think a lot of the things that we, you know, that, it's a it's a it's been a life well traveled and and well well spent so far you know not to you know you know berlin i mean four years of a you know living in a living in a completely different culture that values free speech and democracy 
you know, well beyond what we're capable of at this moment in America, you know, to, 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 to live and see protests on a weekly basis where, you know, just a, a protest would pop up in the middle of the street un, unannounced to anybody and you just stop and you take it in and you go, wow, people can gather and protest whenever they want. Yeah, it, there's definitely uh, more shining examples of democracy, um, it seems, sadly, um, than this country currently. Um, and on, you know, being so prolific, you know, we're getting into our third chapters in life. Um, do you, is it come to you when it comes to you and I just got to deal with it? Or is it like, are you getting to the point, you know, I was talking to John Doe a little bit about this, about his being prolific. And he said, me, he goes, go talk to Willie Nelson. I got nothing going on. <laughs> so, um, is that something you look at? Like, you know what? I don't know if I can go out and tour every year anymore. I don't know what I've got in me, but you seem to be robust and <laughs> prolific. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess currently with the, you know, with the pandemic and the sort of stay at home orders for the last six months, the good, the good news for me is that, you know, I've been able to, you know, eat at home almost every meal cooking and, you know, getting a lot of, you know, getting a lot of good exercise every day and really taking care of myself so that I am ready when it's time to go back to work. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to try to get in shape three weeks before it's time to go. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As I, as I get, as I get older, the, you know, the actual mechanics of touring get a little bit tougher. You know, it's, um, I always try to tell people it's, it's, you know, doing, doing those shows is not a problem. The, the, the tricky part is one gets older is the recovery time. Uh, so, you know, I have to take that into consideration when we put together tour scheduling, it's always a balance between how many shows in a row can my body handle versus how many days off will make the tour less profitable and less likely to happen. So, I mean, you know, those are just like inside baseball logistics that that most people, most people don't think about, um, in terms of creativity specifically, um, I, you know, my, my output is, is directly related to how much I take in, you know, when I, when I've got a a quiet life of solitude, I tend to write from the inside, you know, my life in Berlin was, was more outgoing and more social and more on the street than it is in San Francisco. So I tended to write more vibrant characters and more, you know, just maybe more, more exciting scenarios. They weren't, they weren't quite as, uh, interior. Uh, but, but overall my, my motto always is I'm just the guy with the rain with a big rain bucket. And when it starts to rain, I go outside and I catch <laughs> as, I catch as much water as I can. I bring it home and then I figure out what to do with it. So. Yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. So who like who like have been your bigger influences? Like, I mean, just in art in general, you don't even have to talk about musicians. Um. Oh, my gosh. In terms in terms of in terms of writing, I guess with music stuff, I mean, you know, I was born in 1960. I had, you know, I had a good understanding of pop music through the through the mid 60s and late 60s as a young kid. I had a lot of jukebox singles and was able to buy a couple albums a year. So, you know, I could tell the Lennon songs from the McCartney songs. Um you know, I, I understood what the who were saying, you know, I knew what the Hollies were about. Uh, 
you know, I did, I guess it took me, it took me years to figure out that this guy, Jimmy Webb, that wrote all these amazing songs in the 1960s was the songwriter. Mm. I mean, I, I, you know, I knew, I knew that he was the songwriter, but I guess I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, how many songs of his, you know, were important to me, I guess, being a fifth dimension fan first. Um, you know, after that, I think as far as, uh, contemporaries in my early days, you know, like Pete Shelley from the Buzzcocks. That's where I, I, I did not know Pete, anything about Pete Shelley's sexuality at the time, but I was able to recognize that he was a master of writing gender neutral love songs. Mm. And, and that appealed to me. So I, I, I think I was able to, you know, sort of sneak that into my, into my methodology. Um, you know, I was a big Joy Division fan. I thought, you know, Ian Curtis wrote some really, you know, sad, poetic, you know, emotional words and was a great performer. So, I mean, you know, found found a fair amount of inspiration there. You know, I, I you know, along the along the way after that, you know, with, you know, visual artists, you know, I mean, people, there's, uh, you know, sort of an obscure artist, Roman Opalka, who spent uh, decades of his life painting numbers on large canvases, you know, in varying degrees of contrast. And he sort of, it was a sort of interesting character because he would document every number that he painted into an audio recorder and the volume of work that he created in his lifetime. It, when you look at it in large exhibits, it almost looks like a series of patches of vinyl because it's just these weird you know, these sequential numbers in tones that create these grooves. And, you know, I think he's probably, probably close to my favorite visual artist. I mean, there's. When did he paint? Like what period of time? uh, It was a lot in the 60s, 70s was his main period. Uh, His last name is O-P-A-L-K-A and good luck finding much about him. He's just one of those, one of those, you know, European artists that sort of fell through the, fell through the cracks. And uh, I was lucky to see a a retrospective of his work at, I think it was at Minneapolis College of Art and Design, or it might've been Minneapolis Art Institute in the late, you know, in the mid to late eighties, left a real impression. You know, people like Anselm Kiefer, you know, uh, Mark Rothko. I mean, people, you know, sort of the darker, darker late 20th century stuff. Right. Oh, that's all great. I'm going to look up, uh, I'm going to find Opelka. Opelka? Roman Opelka. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to find his work. Crazy stuff. It's great. So I'm going to, I've got a couple more questions and then we'll get you out of here. Um, And one is, you know, with the guitar and with your voice, um, I'm always interested because the guitar drives so many things for you. Um, is that always kind of intentional? I mean, do you have confidence in your singing? As a guitar, sometimes seems to over override it. Um, is there any? Is there any? Uh, I don't know what I would say. Is there a method to that in any way or not? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think I think in order, my strong suits are rhythm guitar, composition, uh, and then singing and lead guitar probably tied for last. Um, it's so I tend to write to my strong suit, which is, you know, rhythm guitar and sort of those large blocks of, you know, neither major nor minor chords. Uh, and then I tend to let the vocal melody set the emotional space, you know, whether the, whether the melody is like your favorite thing, which is a, you know, a positive major key melody, 
you know, or whether it's a song like Sinners and the Repentances, which is, you know, that darker minor key. So, you know, just like the simple levers that you can pull as a, as a, as a, as a writer, um, you know, given the choice between if somebody put me in a band and said, do you want to play rhythm guitar or lead guitar? I would always take rhythm guitar. Good for you. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, 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 it's, way, it's way more important, I think, than winner, than, winner. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, so that's, so that's, you know, I tend to, I tend to look at it that way. You know, I think I'm really, I think I'm really good with words. I have, I have a lot of Simple tricks that I use over and over, you know, with consonants and sibilance, you know, in, in the, in the idea of where I put S's and T's and P's, hmm. you know, and how they relate to the percussive movement of a track, you know, with drums, you know, I mean, those are the, those are just little things and they don't always happen in the creative process. Those, those are the kinds of things I might separate out for the editing Right. Process, you know, as I'm writing again, it's just, it's the rain bucket. But after, after that period is done and it's time to formalize a song so that others can learn it, that's when I go in and do the, the refining and using, you know, those, those extra, those, you know, a little more surgical, and I guess, in, in, in the toolkit. Right. That makes sense. And uh, I will never doubt how you rank your rhythm guitar playing, but I would rank your vocals higher. I'm sorry. (laughs) I love those vocals. Sorry, my friend. No, no, it's good. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting voice to be sure. I'm, I'm not, I, you know, it's mine. So I, I have to listen to it all the time. So I'm not the biggest fan of it. (laughs) Yeah. Unique is good. Unique is good. Uh, And lastly, I just want to ask you, is there anything new you're listening to that you really dig? Um, well, my, my guilty pleasure this summer has been the Dua Lipa album. Ah. I think, I think hallucinate is like the, like the greatest, the greatest, uh, the greatest gay bar song that will never get heard this summer because all the bars are closed. <laughs> right. <laughs> so when I want to feel like it's Friday happy hour, I could just throw on the Dua Lipa album and jump around the house. Awesome. Um, I, let's see, as far as like, as far as like rock stuff, there's a group from Ontario called Metz, M-E-T-Z, on Sub Pop, and they have a new album uh, that's coming out in October, and I was lucky enough to get to get a, a version of it a few months ago, and I mean, it's great if you're a fan of, you know, really, really dense, you know, angular, big guitar music, you know, similar to some of the stuff you might hear coming out of the Midwest, like in the later in the 90s, like touch and go kind of stuff you know, maybe in that, in that, in that, in that area. Um, I like the new bully album a lot. Um, trying to think of what other things, the best coast album that came out earlier this year is real good. That's a good one. Uh, I'm a big, I'm a big supporter of Chaz bear who works mostly under the name Toro e moi. Hmm. You know, it's a more, more, more electronic, more R and B, more producerly at times. But he's a great live performer as well. Uh, it's a lot of uh, I like a lot of the stuff that he does that leans more towards the you know the French touch, French house kind of vibe. Yes, you know, I was a, I'm a big fan of that. I'm always a I'm always a sucker if you if you got good French touch or French house, I will listen. You know, I <laughs> I, I love my filter house still. So. Awesome. Are you still producing others or, or not so much anymore? Yeah. The most recent production project was for uh, working with a group from New York called Titus Andronicus. We worked together about uh, almost two years ago and uh, Titus are also on merge and they wanted to make a rough and ready record. And we, 
recorded that album at Electrical Audio in Chicago as well, in the in the big in the A room, and uh, mixed it at Oakland. And real real great guys, super live band, and we made a made a fun fun sort of Americana meets first wave punk rock record that is uh, you know they're great band, and it was a fun album to make. We didn't we set a we had a time limit on ourselves to to make it in ten days or less, so we we were able to get that done. Fantastic. I will seek that. Is it out right now? Can I seek that out? Yeah. Uh, the Titus Andronicus album is called An Obelisk. And I think it was released a little, about a year and a half ago. So it should awesome. be quite available. Awesome. Well, listen, my friend, I, I'm going to wrap this with you. I am really grateful you made the time. Um, your contributions um, on so many fronts creatively. Um, I don't know. Everyone owes you a debt of of of. Something I feel, um, and anyone who hasn't seen you live is uh, a sadder human being because they really need to come out and see you when you can get back out there and play again. I can't wait. And thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. My pleasure. Stay healthy and uh, let's get through this year somehow. All right, mask up. Right. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. Well, that's our show this week. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe even learned a little something. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Theradicalpod.com. You'll find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a t-shirt or a hat. Also, I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week.